Well, good morning. My name is uh, Chase Phillips, and uh, as you heard earlier, I am from born and raised in Knoxville. Uh, I did I did play at UT, but I don't want you to get your hopes up. I'm no Peyton Manning or anything like that. I'm not really that important. I actually say I stood at UT. I didn't play at UT, um, if you catch my drift there. Um, so don't, you know, autographs wouldn't be worth a nickel. So don't even, <laughs> don't even worry about that. Um, I, I do want to say a couple of things before we uh, get started. Um, I, as soon as I heard about your church's season that it's in, I began praying for you guys. And I don't say these words lightly when I say I know how you feel because those words uh, can seem, you know, no one really knows how you feel. Um, but I have experienced um, what you guys are currently going through as a church body. Uh, in my first church I was on staff at, uh, we had an interim. Our pastor left for another church. We had an interim for about two months. Um, we were in staff meeting with him. He got a phone call, walked outside, came back in, finished staff meeting, and said he had six months to live. And he had cancer, just caught wind of it like that, and he, he died four months later. Um, and so finding people fill the pulpit, all the questions, all the concerns, all the doubts, all the what ifs, what about now, all of that stuff. Um, we, we walked through those days as a church, um, and it was it was hard. And uh, I don't have like a here's what you do, here's a three-step process. Um, it's Jesus, <laughs> and that's really what it is, and it's staying in community as a church. Um, and it was actually... Um, when you run to Jesus, he normally doesn't give you the answers. He just gives you himself, and that's enough. Are you with me on that? Like, uh, I took my, I have two kids, four and two, so I get lots of rest at home. And um, they, I took them to see a fireworks show recently, and the first firework went up, and I was really excited because I love fireworks. I was hoping my kids would. They're kind of scared of loud noises, but fireworks aren't that loud what else what I was thinking which was really not smart obviously so the first firework went up and it and my four-year-old he was three at the time is standing in front of me and his head just goes up and watches it and I'm like this is gonna be great he turns around and he's just his he is crying profusely like can't breathe crying like like ugly crying you with me and the uh I was just I ran to him I scooped him up and you know what I said to him I said his name's Deacon I said Deacon all that is is a chemical reaction. When phosphorate and natrous <laughs> get together, it creates this explosion. You think that's what I said to a three-year-old? Of course not. What did I say to him? I'm here. I'm with you. It's almost over. We're going to get through this. I'm going to take you to safety, right? That's what you tell someone that's going through a struggle, right? You're not going to get the answers, but you're going to get Jesus, and that's enough. And that's enough. I promise you, it is enough. And, and so that's kind of what... And it's interesting, I have to say this, the worship was amazing, but Sanctuary was actually the pastor that passed away. That was his favorite song ever. In fact, he's, he, they played a clip of him singing that at his funeral. So it was just eerie that that song was played this morning. And so it really brought back memories of Pastor Richard. Um, so all that to say is I'm, I'm praying for you guys in these days. Um, it's not going to be easy and I'm praying for the family of your pastor and I just pray that um, that you all can find comfort in in Christ and so um, what I kind of want to talk about you to you this morning is is all this worth it like let's just be honest for a second is is all of this stuff is it worth it is waking up 
on Sunday morning, getting here, fighting traffic, getting your kids dressed, going through all the all the stuff, rehearsals, classes, getting everything together, like all this can really start to feel very draining. And as our culture is starting to shift the way it is, Jesus is becoming more of the, is it worth it? Like, is it worth my, you know, my job, my reputation, my popularity, my social status? Is it worth waking up on Sunday morning when I've had a long week? Is it, is he worth it? And we don't normally ask those questions out loud because we know in church the resounding answer is yes, obviously you should be here, you should do the thing, you should go to that place. Um, but in our heart, it, sometimes we can feel this longing for something else and this longing for feeling maybe he's not worth all of this trouble, right? And we can lose sight of all that he's promised us in the midst of our circumstances. But worship, um, and the song again this morning, that worship is, is more than a song, in of itself, but worship is your response to what you value most. And so you can worship UT football, right? You with me? Like you can. It's not a very good God, if you're, if I'm being honest. But you can worship it. You can do all the things, go through all the emo, all, all the motions, buy the tickets, go to the place, chant, holler, stand, sit, yell, and go home crying because you lost, right? Like that's what we do. Like, but we can worship. Anything. You can worship your job. You can worship your family. You can worship yourself. You can worship your status. You can worship social media. There's lots of things that we worship, but worship is what you value most, and it's your response to that. So obviously we should worship Christ, but we have to find him worthy of that. And so as you guys probably know uh, Paul and Scripture, he was one of these guys that you couldn't really do anything with if you wanted to stop his cause. Like, like, if you threw him in prison, he evangelized all your guards. If he said, hey, we're going to kill you, he's like, all right, bring it. Live as Christ, die, the Christ is gained. Like, you can't do anything with a guy who finds Jesus so valuable and so worth it that even if you take his life, he still is like, that's, that's great with me because he's worthy of not just his worship, of not just his life, but he's worthy in, even in, if it kills him. Jesus is still worthy um, for Paul to die. And so I believe that Paul kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes view of why he, wait, he is the way he is in Philippians chapter 3. And so Philippians chapter 3, we're going to pick up in, uh, in verse 7, but I, I kind of want to give you some context of what's going on here. All right, so Paul has been talking about some of the stuff he's been dealing with in Rome. He's in prison. He's in Rome. He, he's awaiting his death, and he's pretty aware that he doesn't have much longer. And he's not really sure how all this is going to play out. but And so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally. Now, when he says finally, he's not saying, I'm almost done, which is what most preachers do. Am I right? Like in conclusion, and it's like three hours later, and you, miss your re- you missed your reservations at Shoney's. Are you with me? Like that's what Paul is not doing that here. Paul is saying, finally. He's saying, I'm getting to the point. I'm not concluding. I'm getting us to the, what I'm talking about. And then he begins to talk about the Judaizers who have been trying to get him killed. He's like, watch out for those guys. They're dangerous. They're dangerous people. And then he says, don't boast in anything that you can have confidence in in the flesh, which is what the Judaizers did with circumcision. Then Paul's like, if anyone has room to boast, it's me. I don't know about you. I've never been in a position where I can boast in my walk with Christ, right? I've never, I, hey, I'm almost perfect here, right? Never been there, but Paul Paul's pretty close. So Paul lists his all of his academics, 
all of his awards, his Pharisee degrees, his Sunday school attendance, like uh, everything that he could boast in, in the flesh, he lists it all out. And he picks up in verse 7 when he says this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever gain, and in the Greek, gain is plural, I had, I counted in the past tense as loss for what? The sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And you see what Paul's saying? Everything that I have gained and achieved, I now consider loss. Which in the Greek, loss means loss as by death. It's not like you lost it in the couch cushion. It's gone. Like, I've lost it to death. So he's saying, I've lost all of that to death. So why? He says, I now know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So all the achievements, all the stuff, all the awards, all the fame, all the possessions, all the fortune, all the things Paul longed for, all the stuff I can brag and boast in, I now look at as loss. Why? Knowing Christ and knowing his gospel. What Paul is saying is, is I see his worth. So all the stuff, it can be, it's loss. I count it as loss. It's dead to me. It's literally what he's saying. That's a pretty bold statement, right? All the stuff, I don't need it because Jesus is worth it. So what he says, for the sake, for his sake, next verse, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. So what Paul is saying here is because of knowing Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, I've lost everything, including his freedom. Remember, he's in prison, so he's not like riding us from the beach or anything. He is in prison and he's lost everything. And he's looking at bars. And he's looking at death. That's very imminent. And so the question that we have to ask is, what does following Jesus cost me? Right? And so asking, is Jesus worth it? That's one thing to ask, but he might be worth a Sunday morning wake-up call. But ultimately, is he worth losing your life for? Is he worth losing your job for? Is he worth, worth that? And that's a really hard question for us to answer. That's what Paul is saying, is it's for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. And look what he says, and I count them as rubbish, which is a fun word to say. But in the Greek, it's a disgusting word. It's like gross. It's like I don't even want to tell you what Paul's referring to here is, but there's there's a couple of ideas. One is really gross. I'm not even sure I can say it from the stage. I'm not going to say that. If you want to know what it is, you can come to me afterwards and we'll talk about it, which you don't want to talk about that before lunch. But the, the common defining word behind the word rubbish in the Greek is dung, which is a polite word to say, you know, a number, a two, right? Like it's, like, I don't know if I can say poop here, but that's what it is. Like, I'm just saying that that's what it is. In my household, we call those boom booms, right? And so when there's a boom boom, you got to change the diaper. Now, when, I don't know about you, but when you're holding a dirty diaper, you're probably insane if you think, this is a good one, we should keep it. Like, I, I don't know, babe. Is this worth the mantle? I think we should proclaim this one and put it on the mantle. Like, no one's going to say that. When you have a dirty diaper in your hands, the first thing you want to do is get away from it. Like, you want to get it away from you. You want to put it in the diaper genie. You want to throw it in the trash, bag up the trash, throw it in the dumpster. You want to get away from it. So Paul's using this word on purpose because that's how he sees all of his stuff. Right? It's not only repulsive to him now, it's offensive to him. He wants to get away from it. It's worthless, and it's offensive to him. All of his stuff, 
Like Paul, really. Your life, your, your freedom, all of your stuff, all your decrees, all of your fame. You just want to walk away from that. Paul's like, it's considered rubbish to me. Why? And Paul gives you three reasons why in the very next verses. He says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So I consider it rubbish so I can gain Christ and be found in him. And then the next one, he says, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that's his first reason. Like, I don't boast anything I've done. I boast in knowing Jesus and what he's done and being found in him. The second reason he counts all this as rubbish is in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? Don't you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? And you only can experience that when you've lost it all. Like the re- only reason Jesus was resurrected is because he was crucified first. And Jesus and Paul says, I want to know that. I want to experience a resurrection with Christ. And then the third reason, it says, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is saying, why do I consider all this rubbish? So I may gain Christ and be found in him, may know him and his power and his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings to become more like Christ. Like, that's hard for us to digest. Like That's a lot to take in because what Paul is saying is, is knowing Jesus is worth more than anything I lose. So when you realize all you have is Jesus, you realize you have everything you need. That's really hard for us to comprehend, especially in America. Right? I, I love looking back here. You have this banner of people who are risking their lives in countries where they could die. And we think that's crazy. That's radical. It's not really crazy or radical. It's biblical. That's what that is. But it's really hard for us to swallow that because we can become very comfortable. So Paul is saying to Rome, like, hey, do your worst. You know, the more you... The more you take from me, the more room I have for Christ. He wants to be emptied out so he can have more of Christ. So knowing Jesus and suffering loss with Jesus makes you become like Jesus and experience the power of Jesus. So we may think suffering is a problem to be fixed because we worship comfort. If suffering brings you closer to Christ, it's ultimately for your good and his glory. So if you worship Jesus, suffering is not a problem to be fixed. It's a way to know Christ more fully. And again, that doesn't make us tickle. That doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. That's a hard pill to swallow. But Jesus is worthy of that. In fact, when I was in seminary, all the lectures and all the papers and all the reading, I really didn't get much like warm fuzzies from it. In fact, it was just daunting but there was one moment in a hallway that changed the trajectory for the way I viewed Jesus and his worth. And uh, I was in this one class, and it was an eight-hour class. Like, we had to sit there for eight hours. It was awful. It was just awful. So I was there with coffee, ready to fill my head with knowledge, and the, the professor said, I want you to get with somebody in this classroom, and I want you to share some prayer requests and pray with each other, and then we're going to get started. So there's this man sitting in front of me, and he's, he's from China, and he spoke very little English. 
and he turned around and said, hey, I guess we're partners. I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, you got to deal with this thing, right? And so we're talking for a minute. He speaks very broken English. And so I said to him, I said, hey, you go ahead and go first. What can I pray for you about? He begins to tell me that he has a newborn in a hospital nearby who was born with a hole in his heart, which that's pretty serious if you ask me. You shouldn't have a hole there, right? And so he says, we're trying to get him discharged, which that perked my attention really well because I'm like, I'm not a doctor, but he probably should stay in the hospital. I, I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that's what you should do with that. And so he said, we're trying to get him discharged because I have planted a church in China in a very dangerous area. And two of our members we, got, we just heard over the weekend got killed because they got caught with a Bible in their bags. Killed for holding a Bible. And this guy looks at me and says, I need to get my kid out of the hospital, my newborn, who has a hole in his heart, to get him back to China so I can strengthen my church, who have just lost two members. And he looks at me and says, what can I pray for you for? And I was like, well, it's funny you should ask, because I stumped my toe this morning and it hurt real bad. Like, I didn't have anything to say. What do you say to that? I have nothing. I have nothing to compare to that. And so the rest of the class, I could not stop thinking about this guy. And what he was experiencing and going through and thinking through. And so after class, I ran up to him in the hallway. I touched his shoulder. He turned around. He was, he was just like, he just looked at me like I was about to like hurt him. I was just like so just amped up by this guy's approach to his life. And I looked at him. I said, I asked the question, why are you the way you are? And he grinned as if he's heard that question a thousand times. He put his hand on my shoulder. And you know what he said? He said, read Philippians 3. And then he said this. Jesus, worth it. Jesus, worth it. And he turned around and he walked away. Never saw the guy again. Didn't even know what his name was. Jesus, worth it. And those three words have rung in my ears every single day. Because at that time, when I was in seminary, I had a six-month-old who, if he missed his nap schedule, I was about to die. This guy's trying to get his baby out of a hospital, y'all. They get him to a church that's going through persecution on the realest level ever. But here's what I want you to understand is that Jesus is worthy and he is worth it. And if you live a life that worships God, it will cost you. Worship has always cost humans. In the Old Testament, it cost you a bull or a ram. In the New Testament, it could cost you your life. Worship has always cost us. So this might sound really exhausting. Like, Chase, this is great and all. I agree with that, but I'm just not there. Hang in there. There's, there's hope. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So Paul says, I, I haven't arrived yet. I still struggle. I haven't been perfected yet. Right? Like, I don't know about you. Like, when I go to a gym... And I see someone with like a six-pack or like ripped arms or just really muscular. I'm like, why are you even here? You're done. Like, you're, you have no reason to be here, right? And Paul's like, hey, I'm not done yet. And I'm like, Paul, you're probably done. You're in prison for Jesus. You're about to die for Jesus. You probably have arrived. And Paul's like, no, I'm not there. So the question that comes up in my mind when I'm reading this is like, why bother, Paul? Why struggle? Why fight against the darkness of the world? Why try to be conformed to Christ? And this is the way he says Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is why Paul is the way he is. 
And this is where you have to be, church, is you have to dwell in this fact that Jesus Christ has made you his own in the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He became sin, who knew no sin. That's why Paul is the way he is. That's why his life was worth risking. That's why his life was worth giving away. Because he first loved me. Because he brought me close. Because despite my sin, my rebellion, my wandering, and my running, Christ still said, I love you. And when that goes from head knowledge to heart knowledge, it goes to your hands and you live it out. Because that understanding changes everything about who you are. In fact, if it was 11... 15 and there's no chase phillips here and i and like it was time for the, the sermon to be and then there was no there's no fat guy with a beard here you're like where's this guy at and i just came barreling in those doors and i came running up on the stage and i was like breathing hard sweaty and i was like hey i'm sorry i'm late i was on the highway and uh i saw a cow on the road and i was trying to get it off the road a little bit so that it would be safe because i like hamburgers and so i wanted to get it off the road and i as I was getting the cow off the road, I was getting back into my, my, my car, and a Mack truck just ran me over, like just obliterated me. Like, they didn't even stop either. So anyway, I'm here now, and I'm ready to talk to you about Jesus. You'd be like, okay, there's two things wrong with this story. You either are profoundly mistaken, right? Like, that, that's got to be a lie, right? Because you can't get hit by a truck and look the same, right? You can't fake that. That's something that happens, right? And so what Paul is saying here is this, if grace has radically changed and transformed your life, you're different now. It doesn't happen overnight. All your desires and temptations don't go away. But when you get hit by something like this gospel, it changes you every inch of your life. It takes over from the inside out. And so Paul is saying... I want to know Christ because he has made me his own. And here's the secret of the gospel, is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. See, church can be do this, do this, do this, do this. What would Jesus do? Do this, do this, do this, do this. And guess what? You can't keep up with that, can you? (laughs) Because you're not Jesus. And that can drive you to despair. It can make you miserable. It can make you check boxes when it comes to religion. But that's not what the gospel's done. The gospel is to focus in on what Christ has done. And when you realize that and that washes over you, then you begin to live a life that glorifies Jesus because you find him worthy of it. And look what he says in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made, made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, on paper, going to Disney World or going to Dollywood is a dumb idea. Now hear me out before you all kick me out of your nice church. I don't say that to be heretical. I'm just like, let's just be honest for a second. If you're a parent of young kids, you know it's kind of miserable. I mean, you got to be honest with me, right? It smells like sunscreen and depression. It's hot, right? There's lines for everything. And guess what three-year-olds and two-year-olds don't understand? 
lines. Right? And you're carrying all the stuff. You're a beast of burden the whole week. you got boom-booms everywhere. It's just like, it's miserable. Right? And you're just like, it's just not worth the money. It's not worth the traveling. It's not worth the, you know, I could be at home on an AC, in our couch, watching TV, you know, spending the you know, day doing what I want to do. And all that goes to your head. Right? And then your kid gets on a plastic zebra for 67 seconds going 0.3 miles per hour, going up and down, and you see their face and you go, we should come back next year, right? Like, why is that? Why did I suffer and sacrifice and get up all all the stuff I gave up to be in this moment? And when you see your kid's face riding a plastic zebra, it's like, that was worth it. I'll do it again. We should do this again, right? This is what Paul is saying here on a much bigger scale, Right? As I press on, I, I consider all the stuff lost. I'm straining for it. What, for the what lies ahead, I'm pressing on toward the goal. The goal of what? The upward call in Christ Jesus, which is experience Jesus fully in his presence. So Paul is saying, I'm struggling to get there to the upward call because it's worth it. And knowing Jesus is worth more than any earthly struggle or loss because he is our reward forever. Forever. So he does that by forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, toward the goal of the upward call. And the upward call is an Olympic reference because it means the upward call is when you say, and the winner is, right? That's the upward call. The winner is Paul, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the upward call. And then I can enter into him forever and fully and finally experience his worth forever. So, so much of this life is built around being comfortable. And I don't know about you, but it can become very convicting. But Paul's saying, I'm fighting and I'm struggling and I'm straining to get to this place to be with Christ. And we can say no to momentary pleasures by knowing Jesus is our eternal satisfaction. And by the way, it's really hard for Satan to tempt you with an empty pleasure of this world when you're filled with the joy of Christ. Like on Thanksgiving, we go like we do all like our our turkey our, we call it our turkey tour, right? You go to all the places and you eat all the food, and it's amazing how you can eat all that food and get so sick that you would deny pecan pie, right? That just doesn't seem American. Nor biblical, if you're asking me. Like, and I know it's hard for you to imagine, but when I get so full, I don't, I can't eat anything else. Like nothing will tempt me, right? Turkey, I'm done. Pecan pie is out. Apple pie, I'm, I'm full. Now, why is that? Because I'm filled, right? So you can say no to the world and all of its pleasures and all of its gifts and all of its temptations when you're filled with Christ. You have no more room. You don't have an appetite for anything else because you have been filled. With Christ, and this is where Paul is. And he says this in verse 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So you might be saying, well, I'm just not there yet. I'm not that radical. I'm not that strong of a believer. I'm just not, I don't believe that much. And Paul's like, hey, if you're mature, think that way. If you're not there yet, Christ will reveal that to you also. And then verse 16, only let us hold true to what we 
have attained. So creating a worship-filled life will not happen by your hard work, and it won't happen overnight. And so there was this old French philosopher, and he asked a room, this was a long time ago, he asked this room of people, what's the best, if you were stranded on a deserted island, and you had a, a tribal people group there, and, you, and your only goal was to teach them how to build a boat, what do you do? I want you to think about that for a second. If you're on, a, you're, you're on an island and your only goal is to convince people to build a boat who have never seen a boat, who don't even know what a boat is, never heard the word, don't know anything about it, how would you convince them to build a boat and get off the island? These people started discussing, like, we should just cut down wood and demonstrate it to them and build it for them. But you're only one person. It's really hard to build a boat on your own. And you have to explain it the whole way. It's just, that would be really... That would be really frustrating if you think about it. And this one guy raised his hand and he said this. The way to help them understand what a boat is is tell them about how beautiful and vast and endless the sea is and they will find a way to build it themselves. You see that? It's not do this stuff. It's look at Christ. And if you see Christ and find him worth worthy and worth it, you'll figure out a way to worship him. You'll figure out a way to build that boat because you want to see more of that. And this is what drove Paul. And so whatever captures your heart's attention and love also controls your behavior. When your heart wants something, your mind finds it reasonable, right? That's like, you know, when you're eating pizza and like, well, there's dairy in this and that's good for my heart. Like you can make up stuff really easily. It's, I find it reasonable, all right, your emotions can find it valuable, and you will find it doable. Your love shows what you actually believe in, not what you say you do. And it's not merely changing your behavior. This is what we always go to in church. i got to change my behavior. That's not how you fix your problem. You don't change your behavior. You change what you love. And when you change what you love, your behavior will change. Right? When you have a very good picture of that in marriage. Like, I loved sleeping in. I got married. That doesn't happen anymore. Right? I loved having money. I got married. It doesn't happen anymore. Right? That's, that's what it looks like. It's, I change what I love. I love my wife. I, my wallet, I'm sorry, it's gone. Amazon, thank you for taking all my money. Like, that's where it gets us to is because when you see Jesus is lovable and worthy and worth it, it's like all this other stuff, I don't really need it. It changes your affections and it changes your behaviors. So I, I, I just want to conclude with a few thoughts. Is worship as a response to what we value most? Right? And so this is it's an act of ascribing ultimate value to someone or something in a way that engages your entire being. And so the design of congregational singing and worship, which is what we, we do every week, all right, that's designed once a week that the people of God join together in community declaring in the midst of this world that we are not drawn in by pleasures or pursuits or comforts or applauses or wealth of this world because we have found in our God the supreme satisfaction of our souls. And there's nothing that's worthy to sustain the weight of your soul. You won't find it anywhere in this world. People have looked in their entire lives finding something, and they can't find it. 
Fame doesn't get you there. Every celebrity is depressed, right? Fortune doesn't get you there. Every person who's wealthy is depressed. Like, it's just, it's not going to be found in this world. And so once a week, we come together, and just like one of your elders prayed this morning, it's like, hey, if we've been drawn away, and bring us back. In your songs you sang, it's like, I bring me back to the heart of worship. That's all this is, is to remind us so we gather on Sunday so we can live it out on Monday. We gather so that we can scatter, right? And then the world is beating us up week in and week out, and we come in here to be refreshed, right? This isn't the stage. This isn't like the end game. This is the halftime speech on Sunday morning, right? It's when you come in, you're beat up in the first half, running plays you didn't experience, and then Satan's playbook is getting more difficult, and then you come in here, you get refreshed, you get pumped up, and you get back out there and fight. This is not all there is to living a life for Jesus. This is where it starts. This is not where it ends. And so I, I don't want you to think like, The goal for me here from this message is to try harder or to do more. That's not the goal, right? And so, in fact, my wife, you know, when we first got married, speaking of marriage, she wanted me to empty the dishwasher. And I was like, this was before, you know, Netflix was really popular. And so I I was like, wait till, can you wait till a commercial break? Which we don't know what commercials are anymore, right? And I was like, she wanted me to do it right away. You know, she said to me, she said, I just want you to want to. Like, what does that even mean? I want you to want to? Like, I didn't want to, right? You know what she said to me? And it, it, like, it changed my view, really. I, I was very, I, you don't think you're selfish until you get married, right? And you really don't think you're selfish until you have kids. And you realize, man, I'm really selfish, right? But she said something to me in the kitchen. She said, she just shifted the conversation really fast, and she said, Chase, would you take a bullet from me? And I was like, Who, who's someone messing with you? I'll take care of it, right? Like, right here, right now. So she went from asking me to empty the dishwasher to asking me to take a bullet from her. And I jumped at the, I jumped at that. I'll take a bullet for you anytime, anywhere, no matter what. No questions asked. And then she said, well, why don't you empty the dishwasher for me? That's a lot less of a commitment. I was like, that's a really good point. So you know what I did? I emptied the dishwasher, like right away. And so like that's kind of what we do with Jesus a lot. Like I'll take a bullet for you, Jesus. I'll do something crazy for you, but probably won't ever happen, you know. Like would you die for Jesus? Yeah, I'd die for Jesus. Probably won't ever happen, though, because you can commit the uncertain future to a current guilt. Are you with me? Like, that's kind of what we do. But all Jesus might be asking you to do is empty the dishwasher, right? So that might mean you need to go on a mission trip. That might mean you need to get more involved in your church. That might mean you need to be sharing your faith with a coworker. That might mean that when you wake up tomorrow morning, the first thing your eyes see is not your phone screen, but the Word of God. Like, that's emptying the dishwasher for Jesus. And that might be what Jesus wants you to do with this message. But another thing is, too, is... You can't rely on adrenaline to carry you with Christ, which I work in student ministry. I've been in student ministry for over 10 years, and all I see, you know, we wait for the camp experience or the high or the, you know, the convention or whatever it is, is we get, this really, we get really amped up for Christ, and you get home, and guess what happens? You go back to straight back to normal, right? It's not adrenaline that keeps you staying with Christ. It's abiding. You can't pep talk yourself Every day. It won't last. You know why? Because you're human and you don't want to worship God. In fact, we are innately don't want to worship God. Romans 1 tells us that. We seek after gods that we can build. So the question I want to kind of leave you with is what do you value most? That's a great place to start. Is what do you value most? 
And that's where you're putting your worth. And then I want to ask you the question, if what you value most, and don't be like church answer with me yet. Actually think in your mind, what do I value most? Then I want you to pretend that God took that away. Is he still worth it? If God took away the thing you worship and valued most, maybe it's your income, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your comfort, and God just took that away. Is Jesus still enough for you? If heaven was just an empty room with Jesus sitting in a chair, is that enough for you? If, if God took everything you loved away, like Job, would you still say, blessed be the name? And that's where you can really realize, is this whole Jesus thing really worth it? Now, and obviously, I'm not saying God's going to take everything you love away. But I'm trying to get, help us to realize that's what it looks like. This is where Paul is. And so a couple of scripture references and I'm closing. Matthew 13, 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Can you imagine getting in your car and you get a flat tire and you pull over and you see this field with a for sale sign on it and you just kind of walk around the, the property and say, I'm not buying this. And you're kind of walking around, you trip and fall, and you, it's a treasure chest filled with millions and millions and millions of dollars. And then you go back home, and you sell your house, you sell your car, you quit your job, you put everything you have into buying that piece of property, and all your friends are like, have you lost your mind? That's not very secure. Think about your future. What are you doing? What about your family? How are you going to provide? How are you going to do it? How are you going to, how, 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 why, why, why? And the whole time you're like, you have no idea what's in that field. You have no idea what I'm about to buy. Jesus is telling this parable because that's what the gospel is. It's giving up everything here for something that's there. It's believing now what is going to be there. And people might look at you like you're crazy for giving up all this stuff. And you're like, you have no idea what lies in that field. That's why Jesus says that. So selling all you have with joy in order to have the treasures of the kingdom is a parable way of saying count everything as loss in order to gain Christ. Let me end with this. The loss of all things is not sad if we gain Christ. This season that your church is in is not a loss. It's not a season. It's not a transitional season. It's getting you closer to Christ. And I'm sure... That's what your pastor wants in this kind of a season. He may not be here on the pulpit, but he's living a life that says Jesus is worth it and he's worthy. And he wants you to continue that mission of telling that to the people. And so there's this little passage in John 6, and I'm closing after this, I promise. And so Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people with a Hebrew Happy Meal, right? So he's just fed 5,000 people. He's gone on a boat. Next you know, morning or night has come. Morning is now here. And those 5,000 people are crossing the sea to get to Jesus. And they're looking for their McGriddle, looking for breakfast. That's what it says. It didn't say McGriddle, but you're with me. That's what they're looking for. All right, they're looking for their breakfast. They're like, all right, Jesus, what you got? What's on the menu? And Jesus gives us really weird teaching. 
I don't have any miracles for you, but you can have my flesh and drink my blood. You're like, you know what? Actually, a sweet tea and a griddle is all I wanted. That sounds kind of gross to me. I don't want that. And Jesus says, that's all I can give you. What he's talking about is his life, the Lord's Supper. He's talking about, I'm giving you my life. The people are like, oh, I just wanted breakfast. You know what they did? They all walked away. Now, I don't know if Jesus had a PR guy, but when you have 5,000 people walking away, you should probably say something. Like, ah, oh, he was just kidding. All right, breakfast is over there. He was just, it was all a joke. We have leftovers from last night anyway, so you can just chew on that. Like, that's what I would be doing, right? Because when we think of church and we think of getting a bunch of people together, it's like we, the more the better, the more numbers, numbers, numbers. But, guys, Jesus had 12 and lost one. He ended his ministry with 11 disciples. So it's not about this seating capacity, right? So why would Jesus purposefully thin a crowd out? Why would he say that? Now, I want you to imagine you're sitting in the middle of Nayland Stadium, and there's 5,000 people sitting there, and they're all walking away. Wouldn't you feel like you should be walking away too? If I'm one of those disciples, I'd be like, I'm out. That's 5,000 people. That's a lot of people. I mean, think how long it takes for 5,000 people to leave an area. That's a long time. There's a lot of questions going through your mind. Is Jesus worth it? And then Jesus, in verse 66, says this. After, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Which is a great question. Can you imagine that moment? 5,000 people are walking away. Jesus looks at you in the eye and says, Are you leaving? Are you leaving? And then good old Peter, who gets a lot of things wrong, says this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth and your spirit. We thank you that we're able to see a glimpse of who you are through your word. We thank you for Paul's words in Philippians as we can see that he was a man that was losing everything, including his freedom, and he considered it all worth it for the sake of knowing Christ more. So, Father, I pray that as, as this church is contemplating these things and going through the season that they are, I pray that they see your worth, that you are of utmost value. And that we may not have every earthly comfort that we want, but we know we have every heavenly treasure in you. And I pray that we see that even if we lose everything here, we actually gain more because we gain more of you. And everything you take away, everything that gets away from us, everything we lose in this earth, it's actually just making more room for you in our lives. And so I pray for this church. I pray for the days that are ahead. I pray for this pastor who served here faithfully. I pray for the family. I pray for um, the leadership here and the congregation here as they begin to put pieces together to keep this church doing the mission that you've called it to do. I thank you for their willingness to do that. And I pray most of all, Father, that we find you worthy. And we know that because Jesus is worthy and he's worth it. And it's his name we pray.
Amen.